Turn again with me tonight to the book of Psalms. We continue to make our way through tonight, coming to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, for judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Father, as we think about your destruction of those who do evil, as we think about your recompense, your judgment, pray that you'd help us to think clearly and soberly tonight and also to see the great hope that there is in this psalm. Help us now. Help me now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God of vengeance, shine forth. That's not the typical request that we hear echoing off these walls when we come together on a Wednesday evening to cast all our anxiety on the Lord in prayer, is it? In fact, it may even sound odd to us, maybe even a little bit inappropriate or even startling to hear someone pray like we sometimes hear the psalmist praying. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Or in Psalm 58, O God, shatter their teeth. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. It might sound strange, I say, were someone to pray like that tonight or during our Sunday morning prayer meeting. 
And yet here we have it in black and white on the page before us. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. But if we read on into the psalm, I think we will understand why it's there on the page. Because the psalmist did not pen these words in an air-conditioned auditorium in a free nation on a quiet evening in the sunlight of spring, did he? We're not told, as in some other psalms, who wrote Psalm 94 or exactly when he wrote it. We don't know who exactly the enemies of God were at this time. But we can see well enough from the text of the psalm itself that these words were penned from the midst of a boiling cauldron. These words were penned in a time of immense difficulty for the people of God in days of trial that we in America, thankfully, know very little about firsthand. This psalm was written in the kinds of days that were in another time and place known as the killing times. Just listen to verses 4 through 6 again. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And look at verse 21. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. These were days of great trial for the faithful. Days when God's people were being sorely persecuted. Verse 5, not just mocked, not just marginalized. No, blood was actually being spilt, verse 6. Even the blood of the weakest among them, the widows and the orphans. And so the psalmist is not sitting in his bedroom somewhere fuming over the snide comment that his co-worker made about his faith or over the way his culture marginalizes truth and asking God to smash people's teeth in because of it. That's not where he is. He's not sitting where we sit tonight. He is putting his pen to paper in killing times, in days of grave danger, with blood stains on the streets and homes bereft around him and freshly dug graves dotting the countryside. And in that kind of context, I think we can understand the propriety of his calling upon the Lord to rise up and avenge innocent blood, to shine forth in his vengeance, to finally give the wicked what's coming to them. Just to put it in, into context for us or to help us understand it better, if we saw old women being violently dragged out of our church building, how might we pray? If we saw little children being slaughtered in our city, if we saw pastors being tortured in prison and their families left bereft and destitute, I think we'd find ourselves perhaps praying exactly as the psalmist prays here. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Do something. Break their teeth, Lord. And that's really the first thing I want you to see in this psalm, the first heading of this sermon, which I'm already well on the way, I hope, towards establishing, namely the psalmist's prayer. The psalmist's prayer in verses 1 through 7. There is a right time for us to pray the way the psalmist prays here. There is a time to call upon God to avenge his people's suffering and to uphold his own reputation in the process. Now, as I've been saying, I don't think the time is necessarily when we're only suffering minor offenses, when our persecution is mostly at irritation stage. 
We should pray even in those kinds of situations if a boss marginalizes our free speech, if our families mistreat us because of our faith, when our government and our culture grows ever closer as they are doing right now toward the kind of militancy against the scriptures that may eventually result in Psalm 94 kinds of suffering, we should pray. We should pray earnestly. We should fast with our prayers. Sometimes we should take humble and appropriate action. There are things to do now, but I don't know that now we're warranted just yet to pray that God would shatter the teeth of our oppressors. And yet there is a time when that might be appropriate. There is a time to ask God to gird on his mighty sword, as the hymn writer has said, and to ask him to cut down those wicked men who shed the blood of his saints. We don't take the sword in our own hands, of course. Jesus taught that to Peter, and I want you to note that well. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't take the sword in our own hands, but there is a time and a place to ask the Lord to take it into his. And the time, and in some places in the world, the place may be now. I do want you to remember tonight that though we are not sitting in a Psalm 94 kind of situations, we do have brothers and sisters in various parts of the world who will not be worshiping this week in an air-conditioned auditorium in a free nation on a quiet, sunlit evening. Many of them have to meet in secret. Many of them have to keep their faith secret, even from those closest to them, for fear that they might awaken one night to a Psalm 94 kind of reality tearing through their living room. Some of you have perhaps heard in recent days the story that's been highlighted by Amnesty International and picked up by many news outlets as well of a 27-year-old woman in Sudan, Miriam Ibrahim, who just gave birth to her second child and who faces a potential penalty of 100 lashes for supposed adultery. Adultery because Miriam is married to a Christian, which is illegal for a Muslim woman under Sudan's Islamic law. And therefore, the government has declared her marriage to him invalid. And thus, her relationship with her husband is, in their eyes, adultery, because they're not really married, says the government. And adultery is evidently punishable by a hundred blows of a whip. Then, according to a report I read on the website of the Free Church of Scotland, when she argued that this accusation and this law about Muslim women not marrying Christian men or marrying non-Muslims, when she argued that this wasn't applicable to her, that she had not actually married outside the Islamic faith because she herself is not actually a Muslim but a Christian, she was then further charged with apostasy from the Islamic faith. And all of this has been in the news recently because this month, She has been, as a supposed apostate, sentenced to death by hanging. And this isn't the first such story we've heard in the news, is it? Nor will it be the last if Jesus tarries. Sometimes these brutalities happen to one or two Christians here or there, as in this case, sometimes it's more widespread, as seems to have been the case when Psalm 94 was written. But I say to you, there are times... 
when it seems plausible for us to pray, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? And I suggest that now might be one of those times as we think about someone like Miriam Ibrahim and others of our brothers and sisters who are less well-known but who suffer like she does. There are many, many things to pray in situations like this one. We pray safety for the persecuted. We pray miraculous deliverance if the Lord should will it. We pray a sense of the Lord's presence with those who suffer. We pray that they'll have strength not to renounce their faith in Jesus. We even pray for the salvation of their persecutors. But also, if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to leave off destroying God's lambs, we may also sometimes pray, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. Now, before we leave this point, I have to admit that I wrestle with this a little bit. It is hard for me to balance these prayers in the first few verses of Psalm 94 with, for instance, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I don't think in that context he means to pray like we're talking about here. It's hard to balance this with that. It's hard to balance this with the words of Paul in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And it's not just a matter of Old Testament versus New either because the martyrs in Revelation 6.10 cry out to the Lord almost as though they've recently been reading Psalm 94, don't they? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How do we know when it's right to pray Revelation 6.10 or Psalm 94 and when we should just stop with, bless those who persecute you. I confess I don't know exactly where that fine line is. But let us seek tender hearts about these things. Let us be willing to guide, be guided by the Holy Spirit in these things. As we seek to understand and sometimes even to appropriate the psalmist's prayer here in verses 1 through 7. But now secondly, I want you to notice in verses 8 through 11, the psalmist's warning. He speaks to the Lord, and then he speaks to the persecutors, the psalmist's warning. Apparently, the persecutors in this psalm, as is often the case, had very little concern for what God might actually think about their actions. They thought, verse 7, that he wasn't really even paying attention. Maybe even they thought that it wasn't even all that likely that there was such a God to pay attention to. At least that's what they would have thought if they were modern. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. But listen to what the psalmist says about this. You think God's not paying heed, verse 7? You're the ones who better pay heed, verse 8. You're the ones who are in need of some smelling salts here. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? And then he goes on to say to them that they are off their heads if they think that God, who invented eyes for seeing and who created ears for hearing, has no eyes or ears himself. Now I know, as we said on Sunday, that God is spirit. He doesn't have physical eyes and ears like we do, but you better believe he hears, the psalmist says. 
And you better believe he sees. He knows what's going on. He knows even man's thoughts, verse 11, and he will take action against the wicked. Their cruelty will not slip past his notice. He will repay. Now, all this is very comforting if we're the ones suffering for our faith, right? Our God is not like the idols of our persecutors. He's not like those blocks of stone who have mouths, but they do not speak, who have eyes, but they do not see, who have ears, but they do not hear. No. Our God sees, our God hears, our God speaks, our God acts on behalf of his own. And all of this should be very comforting to his suffering children. But I just want to remind you that the psalmist addresses verses 8 through 11, not to the persecuted, but to the persecutors. He's talking to those who are actually doing the persecuting. Now, maybe he does that just as a rhetorical device. He, he maybe knows that the enemies of his day are not actually going to read his words, but maybe he writes them down anyway and addresses them to these evil men as a roundabout way of encouraging those who will read the words and who are under the lashes. But maybe the psalmist did intend to get this message somehow to those who were persecuting God's people. Maybe he did want them to be warned. And if so, his words are a reminder that when we see God's people oppressed, we may not only speak to God about the persecutors, but we may speak to the persecutors about God. There is a place for God's people to stand against wicked men and tell it like it is. To tell them, God is going to judge you. To tell them that there's a reckoning coming. To speak to them very clearly like Moses and Aaron did to Pharaoh. To speak to them boldly like David did with Goliath. And like Elijah the Tishbite did with King Ahab after the death of Naboth. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick your blood, he said. Even yours. Let me read that about David speaking to Goliath or Elijah speaking to Ahab. And something inside of us swells with admiration, I hope. What a mighty prophet Elijah was. What moxie the psalmist had to grab God's enemies by the collar, as it were, and to tell them what was coming. But there need to be prophets like that today, too, don't there? Not all of us are called to be them, but someone has to be willing to stand before wicked men and announce God's judgments to them and tell them about hell and let them know that God sees everything that they're doing. And I think that's true not only with those who persecute Christians, but those in our country as well who incessantly kill and make it legal to kill the unborn. Someone has to speak out to them too. Someone has to speak out for the innocent blood that can't speak for itself. Someone has to tell the powers that be, God sees what's going on here, and though it may be legal, it is not right, and God will not sit silent forever. And we can say the same thing about men who beat their wives or people who abuse children or those who oppress the elderly or those who traffic young girls. Someone has to have the boldness to look them in the eye and say to them, don't you realize that God sees and that your cruelty will not go unpunished? We don't have to be red-faced and angry about it, although it's hard not to be perhaps. We don't have to be ugly or harsh 
But there is a calling for some of God's people to be bold, to be honest, to warn evildoers that they are trifling with the living God in their cruelty to those who are created in His image. Now I know many of us will have very few opportunities to speak like this because thankfully most of us don't encounter such brutality every day. And many of us have little or no access to those who commit it. I also know that even if we do have access, many of the kind of men and women who do these kinds of things are probably no more likely to listen to us than were the men of the psalmist's day to be reading his psalm. And if they do listen, they probably would say, Who is the Lord? Is there even any such thing as this God you're saying is going to judge me? And I know further that there is much more to be done on behalf of the persecuted and the enslaved and the abused and the unborn than simply to tell their tormentors that God is going to get them. In fact, I would honestly say that Psalm 94 kinds of warnings would probably be a few bullet points down the list of things that I would want to do when faced with the kinds of brutality that we read about in this psalm. There are other things to pray for. There are other things to do with our civic duties with mercy ministries and so on. I realize all of those things can be said, and yet the psalmist still took the time to warn evil men. And some of us will want to have the courage to do the same. So then we've seen the psalmist's prayer, which we can imitate in the right times and places. We've seen the psalmist's warning, which some of us must imitate in the right times and places. And then thirdly, I want us to notice the psalmist's praise. The psalmist's praise. Psalm 94 is not all darkness, is it? No. When we get to verses 12 through 23, we find the psalmist at multiple points praising God for how he is already at work on behalf of his people. Verses 1 through 11 sort of describe the situation. They set the dark backdrop. But now the psalmist changes gears and he begins to praise the Lord for what he is doing amidst the darkness. Which is, incidentally, a good thing to do during any trial that you face. Just stop and notice how God is already at work, how God has already been on your side, and praise him for it. And I just want to walk through these final 13 verses and notice four reasons for praise that the psalmist puts down on the page here. First of all, notice in verses 12 through 13, the psalmist praises God for his chastening. His chastening. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. Now, the psalmist has already mentioned God's judgment on his enemies, but the chastement here in verse 12 is something different. This is not God's action toward his enemies. This is God's action toward his friends, toward his children, because the chastening in verse 12 is a blessed thing, the psalmist says. And it is a chastening that is accompanied, verse 12b, by instruction. And this chastening and this instruction lead to the recipients being granted, verse 13, relief, from the days of adversity, which I take to mean relief from the judgment that God is going to pour out on the wicked. So God wields his rod against some sinners in order to bring down his judgments upon them, verses 1 through 11. But then he also wields his rod with other sinners to keep them from having to face his judgments, 
to keep them from going astray. He chastens some of us and instructs some of us so that we'll have relief from the days of adversity. And the psalmist blesses God, it seems to me, that he's in this latter category. He's chastened by God, not judged by God. He's chastened by God. He's instructed by his word so that he will be driven away from sin and away from folly and find himself safe on the day of judgment. And he may have in mind here the kinds of thoughts that we usually express when we say, There, but by the grace of God, go I. He's been looking at these cruel, wicked, benighted people around him. And when we look at cruel, wicked, benighted people and how, just how deep into sin some people can go, we ought to realize, oughtn't we, that we would be the same apart from God's grace. That we could be on the same paths or similar ones apart from God's saving intervention, which includes instruction from his law and sometimes chastening from his rod, verse 12. We ought to bless God, as the psalmist does, that he's given us a little bit of his chastisement now so that we don't have to face the full brunt of his wrath later. So the psalmist blesses God for his chastisement, for keeping him on the narrow path. But then notice that the psalmist blesses God not only for his chastisement, but also for his preservation, for his protection In the day of trial, verses 16 and 17. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. Now, verse 16 poses an interesting question. And when I first began to read this psalm, I thought that verse 16 was the psalmist pausing in the middle of of everything else that he was saying and calling for people to stand up for the truth and for others to join with him in opposing the oppressors. And of course, that's a good thing for Christians to do, to call others to come alongside us in our stand against evil. We talked about that a bit under the last main heading, how we can join the psalmist in standing against evil. But, but when, I read, uh, when I read today uh, the commentators... I began to agree with them that verse 16 is really more of a rhetorical question. He's asking, who will stand for me? Who will be brave enough to defend me against this oppression? And the answer, verse 17, is, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If the Lord had not been my help, I'd have been dead. In other words, there was no one else to help him, ultimately. There was no one to stand in the gap. There was no one, no one but the Lord, that is, who could actually defend his people. Now, I'm not sure if the psalmist is criticizing his fellow countrymen here. If he's saying, in other words, in the darkest hour, there was no one who would help me. No one but the Lord came to my rescue. Or if perhaps he might rather be saying the situation was so dire that there was no one who could help me. If God had not intervened, there was no one else who could. That's the way it is sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes we, we've done all that we know how to do. And at the end of the day, if God doesn't work miraculously, we're toast. But whatever the case, whatever reason there was no one who would or no one who could come to the psalmist's aid but the Lord, the most important thing is that the Lord did. The Lord helped. People were dying around the psalmist. Graves were being dug. Blood was being spilt. 
Homes were grieving, but somehow the psalmist could say with John Newton, Grace hath brought me safe thus far. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. And yet the psalmist has not gone to the abode of silence. He has lived to pen this marvelous song. The Lord has preserved him. And that's the story of Miriam Ibrahim tonight in Sudan, isn't it? She's been sentenced to hang, but by God's grace, she hasn't done so yet. The Lord has been her helper thus far, and we must pray that he continues to be so. But you know, Psalm 94, 17 is not only the story of the persecuted Christian, but it's really the story of all Christians, isn't it? None of us have suffered quite like this psalmist, nor like Miriam Ibrahim, thankfully, but we all face difficulties, don't we? Both the kinds of difficulties that are common to all flesh and the kinds that seem peculiar to the Lord's people. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we have all faced various trials and pains and setbacks. And yet we can say tonight with John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace has brought me safe thus far. That's the point of verse 17, isn't it? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. And yet the Lord has helped, even when when no one else would or could. The psalmist praises him for it, for his preservation. You thank the Lord that you've been safe thus far as well. And then still under this third main heading of the psalmist's praise, notice also how he blesses God in verse 19 for his consolations. His consolations. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Your comfort So not only has God kept the psalmist alive, verse 17, but he's also kept him sane, verse 19. And those are two distinct things, are they not? Sometimes the believer's suffering is great such that the latter, him keeping us sane, is even better to us than the former. Sometimes it's not so much the outward trials that seem to wreck us, as much as the inner anguish and fear and anxiety that come with them. Isn't that right? It's not always true. But for some people, the fear of what cancer might mean might sometimes be more debilitating in some ways than the cancer itself. The anxiety over what our family might do if we try to share Jesus with them can be just as bad or worse as their actual response. But praise God that he was with the psalmist, not only to guard him from the troubles without, but also from the turmoil within. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. And praise God for how he continues to meet his people in that same way, if we will but go to his word and seek out his consolations and believe them. Some of us know this firsthand, and others of us need to test it and learn it more thoroughly. But all of us, if we will seek the Lord and wait on him faithfully, will be able to say with the psalmist, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, 
your consolations delight my soul. So the psalmist praises God for his chastening, for his preservation, for his consolations, and then also in verse 23, for his recompense. His recompense. Now the psalmist prayed about God's recompense back in the first few verses. And in verse 23, he says he's already seeing God provide answers. He has brought back their wickedness upon them. They've tried to roll a stone onto someone else, and God is already beginning to roll it back upon them. God is already beginning to cause the schemes of the wicked to boomerang back upon their own heads. And the psalmist feels it is right to praise God for this, to say amen to God's judgments upon wicked men. And as we said a week ago, I think it's right for us to do the same when we can do so with praise for God and not simply a vindictive spirit that enjoys dancing on someone else's grave. The amen that we say to the judgment of the wicked is always a sober one, but it is an amen. And the psalmist says it here as he has already begun to see the wheels of God's judgment turning against the ungodly. And so I say in the third place that in the midst of these trials, we should take careful note of the psalmist's praise And we should seek to imitate it. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity. Verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon dwelt in the abode of silence. Verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Verses 22 and 23, but the Lord has been my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them. Many reasons to praise the Lord. And then in the final place tonight, we need also to notice the psalmist's confidence. His prayer, his warning, his praise, and finally his confidence. In verses 12 to 23, the psalmist expresses praise for what the Lord is doing, for what the Lord has already done. But in these same verses, I want you to see also that he expresses great hope, great confidence that the Lord will, in the future, do good to his people as well. And it seems to me that he expresses this confidence along two fronts. First of all, let me just point out ever so briefly from the end of verse 23 how confident the psalmist is that God will finally judge his enemies. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. He has begun and he will complete his judgment. So the psalmist prays for God's judgment in verses 1 through 3. He sees the beginnings of it in verse 23a. And here at the end of the psalm, he has complete confidence that God will finish his work, that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. So God has confidence that, or the psalmist has confidence that God will judge. But I also want you to see at some more length in verses 14 and 15 how the psalmist also expresses his confidence that the tide will turn. The tide will turn. This is the most hope-giving part of the psalm to me. For the Lord will not abandon his people nor will he forsake his inheritance, for judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. 
In other words, this current situation of persecution, trial, suffering, death, is not the final chapter to be written concerning God's people. The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. You remember that when you suffer. The Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Better days are coming, the psalmist says. Days in which not only will God's people be safe again, but their values, verse 15, which are God's values, will once again gain the ascendancy in the land. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Now that may have seemed like pie in the sky to people who were living when the psalmist wrote this psalm. The first people who read this, he, he wrote it down and he said, let's sing this psalm together in the midst of our trial. And they get to verse 15 and talk about how everything's going to be great again and righteousness is going to reign again and people are going to walk with the Lord again. People may have said, come on. I mean, that, that's a wonderful sentiment, but let's be realistic about where we are. But the psalmist says, judgment will again be Righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Things will change. The tide will turn, he says. And when I read that, first of all, I can't help, obviously, but think of the second coming of Jesus and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. In that day, the hope of the psalmist will be accomplished fully and finally, won't it? We read recently in Isaiah 35 a highway will be there, a roadway. And it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. Surely in that day, as in no other day since the fall of man, judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So the psalmist's hope will ultimately be filled when Christ comes again to make all things new. And as the apostle Peter says, we should fix our hope on that day and on the grace that God will grant us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But like so many other prophecies in Scripture, I can't help but think that the words of verses 14 and 15 might have a multifaceted, a multi-layered fulfillment. In other words, I can't help but think that, yes, verses 14 and 15 will have their ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns, but that there have been and may continue to be many other smaller fulfillments of these same hopes in the intervening days because there were times in Israel's history times of revival under kings like Hezekiah and Josiah when the words of Psalm 94:15 would have been pretty accurate descriptions of the state of affairs there were times when once again judgment was righteous and the upright followed it And there have been multiple times in the church age, too, when after long periods of ignoring God's word or denigrating the church, after long periods of unrighteousness, when whole cities, sometimes whole nations, have been caught up in gospel awakening and righteousness has exalted nations and judgment has once again been righteous, verse 15. One thinks of the Protestant Reformation in 16th century Europe with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli as a massive move of the Holy Spirit in which everything seemed to change for so many people. 
And then there was the evangelical revival in 19th or 18th century Britain with Whitfield and Wesley when England and Wales seemed to have been awakened from spiritual slumber, someone has said, as with a bolt of lightning out of a clear blue sky. And there was the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening in 18th and 19th century America, which made our nation the great nation that it has been. And so while we wait more than anything else for the second coming of Jesus, and while we do not anticipate heaven on earth, let us not discount the power of God through the preaching of the gospel to turn whole nations right side up for Jesus so that the churches are full and the adult bookstores are empty and the laws are just and the unborn are protected and marriage is held in honor and the elderly are honored and cared for and the slaves are set free and women like Miriam Ibrahim are treasured and not hanged for their faith. Do you believe that God could do that? Do you believe that a nation like Sudan mired today in Sharia law and with only a small Christian influence, do you believe that a country like that could be a place where someday the law of Christ might actually be the order of the day? Do you believe that America, which has for some time been on a fast track to self-destruction, could be turned right side up for Jesus once again? Just like with the people who are living in the psalmist day, we might apply verse 15 to our nation and think that that would be wonderful but come on now but read the stories of the first and second great awakenings and you will see that our land is not beyond God's hope not because it's our land not because we deserve anything from God not even because of much that is glorious in our past but because of the power of the gospel to change the human heart Or maybe it won't be America. Maybe it will be Sudan or China or Iran or Russia or Israel. But wherever the gospel is preached, there is potential for explosive change. Wherever the gospel is preached, there is potential that judgment will again be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. And let me say as we draw toward a conclusion that it is the gospel ultimately that will bring about this change. Men's hearts are too wicked to live in verse 15 unless they've first been brought through verse 12. In other words, men and women, whether in America or Sudan or Kenya or Mongolia, will not follow upright patterns, verse 15, until they are taught by God's law in verse 12. And no man will allow himself to be taught by God's law unless he's been converted to Christ. Because Paul says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So what is it that makes a man teachable? What is it that brings a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to a place of being ready to listen to God's law and to allow it to begin to govern his life? It's the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, isn't it? You take a natural man, whether he be a hedonistic American or a cannibal from some deserted isle or a Muslim raised on Sharia law or a Buddhist monk high in the mountains of Tibet or a devout Roman Catholic entangled in all sorts of superstition. You take any man, woman, boy or girl and you shower that person with the good news of the Savior. 
You shower them with the news that God himself came down to walk among us and to become one of us. You shower them with the news of his unparalleled life of love, even for sinners. The news of his utter sinlessness. The news of his sacrificial substitutionary death on our behalf. The news of his resurrection on the third day. The news that he really has done enough to save us and that we need add nothing to his finished work. You shower them with the news that he is coming again to right all that is wrong in this world and to make all things new. You shower a man, woman, boy, or girl with that news. And if the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and does in his or her heart what only the Holy Spirit can do, then you won't be able to keep that person from wanting to be taught, verse 12, out of God's law. And you won't be able to keep them, verse 15, from following in upright paths. And if God should happen to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, if the Holy Spirit should choose, as he's done in the past, to bless the preaching of the gospel, not just to one or two folks at a time, but to whole neighborhoods and cities and swaths of humanity at once, then a city, a nation can change overnight. The laws can change overnight almost. The persecution will end. The abortion clinic will close for lack of business. And judgment will again be righteous. Now until then, we work and we pray. We work and we pray for social justice. We work and we pray for better laws. We work and we pray for the persecuted and the enslaved and the unborn. We work and we pray in mercy ministries. We work and we pray with our civic responsibilities. And especially we work and we pray in the things of the gospel, which has the power in a moment to turn everything right side up again. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it.